We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello there, dear listener. You're actually interrupting a conversation Joe and I were having. This is the only podcast, dear listener, where 100% of the co-hosts suffer from Crohn's disease as well as operate a podcast. And we were having our little society meeting about our symptoms, treatments and all the rest of it. So we'll put that on pause, Joe, and talk about it another time. How are you, Joe? That's fine. I'm good, and you? Oh, not too bad. Had my MRI yesterday and some magnetic thing spun around me for a while and I'll find out from the gastro how I'm going. So we'll find out. I think I'm okay. It's just double-checking on things. Now you glow in the dark. Mm, that's right. So, yes, a podcast, dear listener, news, politics, sex and religion. If you join us in the chat room, please say hello. And look, what are we going to talk about well, if you've got a podcast app that shows chapters, you could just look at the chapters in your podcast app and you'll see the headings for the things we're going to talk about. And if there's a topic you don't like the look of, you can just skip past it. Or if there's one you want to listen to twice, that'll make it easy. But we're going to be talking about New South Wales to kick off with, Dominic Paratay with his 21st birthday Nazi costume and pokies and gambling in New South Wales, it on the wonderful world of stamp duty and land tax. And we'll cross over to the UK, the Prime Minister over there, Prince Harry. A little bit about Indigenous stuff will just whet your appetite for the arguments that will be coming down the track this year. And I think that's oh, a couple of other things that we've got there, but we'll, we'll get to those. So, right. Well, the first news, though, Joe, is I promise not to talk about crazy Christians. And goddamn... Cardinal Pell decides to kick the bucket. Kick the bucket. Yeah. I wouldn't put him, though, in the crazy Christian category. When I think of crazy Christians, I think Pentecostals, I guess, new age, muscular sort of Pentecostals. I think Cardinal Pell, I don't think crazy. I think calculating, scheming. Yes. Very smart guy. I was listening to a podcast that had David Marr talking about him and essentially Pell was just the ultimate manager. He was a good administrator and he knew how to turn businesses around, protect businesses from, if not reputational damage, then at least financial, financial damage. yes. And really, in another life, the guy should have been a CEO of, of a major company where he could have used his talents well, you know, maybe he was in the right spot. You know, if, if you're going to be scheming and using well, that sort of managerial talent as I, an authoritarian. I, I read a an article by, who was the guy who got used for defence, the, the law in New South Wales where you couldn't sue the Catholic Church. Um, the Ellis Defence. Sorry? The Ellis Defence. Yeah, so I, I read an article where Ellis either wrote it or was interviewed. Mm. And he said, I, I don't think he lacked empathy. He obviously empathised with me. But then I saw him make a decision 
to protect the church yeah. uh, and bugger, yeah, uh, and, you know, tough luck to the victims. Mm. And he said when he delivered an apology to me, he wouldn't even look me in the eyes. Yeah. He said he thinks he had a conscience and it weighed on him, but he was all about protecting the church and, you know, everyone else was second place. His priority was the church and in particular his role and job in it and his career in the church mm-hmm. because when all that stuff was happening in, oh, what's that funny little town in Vic? Ballarat, was it? Um, Ballarat. And really everybody knew what was going on. Pell knew what was going on. He did mm. nothing about it. He failed to protect the children and, you know. So, uh, the, yeah, I mean, there was a number of people going, well, I don't know what you're all on about. He, he was found not guilty by the Court of Appeal and it was like, mm. But the Royal Commission found that he knew and did nothing about, and worse, that he was complicit. Yes, and he that he was shifting people around. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So it was just damning the Royal Commission. Mm, and absolutely. So it's it's not. You just can't say, "Oh, he was," you know, not found guilty, and therefore stop all your complaining. But if you were reading the News Corp papers and also reading commentary from Liberal National Party politicians you would think the guy was a saint. You would think none of that happened or what did happen and these allegations were some crazy, obscure, leftish sort of allegation unfounded that was besmirching the reputation of a fine man. I I just find it, you know, Dutton who proclaims he was on the drug squad and the, the child protection squad and how he's after all these criminals and... There he is yapping it up about how great Pell was. Yes. These conservatives are the ones who, on any other issue of child abuse, mm-hmm. are, are rabid. You know, they're ready to find child abuse gangs in pizza shop basements, you know, with Hillary and all, all sorts of crazy notions. But when, when their own people are associated with this, they just give them a pass mark, they let mm-hmm. it go. You know, ordinarily, coppers, a Queensland copper, you know, just the idea that he would be defending somebody who's enabled so much child abuse yeah. is just antithetical to what the typical idea of a Queensland or any copper would be. So it's just interesting that there's this perception that he was part of the conservative side and they're in with the conservative side and therefore they're not going to criticise him and, yeah. and hold him up. It's it's terrible. So in the chat room, Tom the Warehouse guy, good on you, Tom, says, Evening all. One can never forget the Richard Dawkins and Cardinal Pell debate. Pell showed he was intelligent but got destroyed that night. It was the first time I suspected child abuse from him too. There we go. I don't know that I've seen that one. I have years ago but... Right. On some sort of Q&A or something like that. Yeah, it was Quanda. Yeah. Right. There was also Hitchens with oh god, who's the guy from the project? The the Wally Daly, yeah, no, Wally really? and might have been Pell as well, right? And was Ali defending Pell or no, no, no? This was yeah. Hitchens was calling Wally Daly out for refusing to condemn right Islam. Right, okay. He's going, you, you may think that it's fine to be a homosexual, but your own holy book says it's bad and you, mm. you refuse to disagree with it. You refuse to say it's wrong. Yes. Would have known the holy book better than Walid Ali. Almost yeah. certainly. Yeah. Actually, I'm thinking it might have been Lawrence oh. Krausenpel as well. 
Actually, Don Tuvey says Charlie Pickering. But it doesn't sound right. Anyway, but interesting, Tom the Warehouse guy used the word Pell got destroyed that night. And, you know, you often see on YouTube a debate. So and so gets destroyed. Jordan Peterson destroys somebody mm. or this person destroys somebody. It's a favourite word, destroy. But when it comes to Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or those characters, they, they did their fair bit of destroying of their opponents in debates. That's true. So, uh, so yeah, Hugh Remington did a post which was, by my count, seven articles over five pages in today's Australian lauding the late Cardinal Pell. Like Pell himself, not much evidence of reflection or of room for other views. I feel like I'm back in church as a schoolboy with grim men laying down the truth. That's true. I've cancelled my Australian subscription, but they're still letting me read it at this point. Oh, okay. Even though it's gone over now a few weeks. And it was full of stuff, most of it quite positive if there was anything negative, it was quite subdued and went on to sort of praise him as being a once in a generation sort of leader. Child in the, rape in and Catholic, yeah. <laughs> No, leader of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And, you know, anybody who was angry about him was just woke. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, Taylor, the Daily Telegraph had a heading, Why the Woke Love to Hate George Pell. And Peter Murphy said... When did being angry about child sexual abuse become woke? I saw a picture. One of the pictures showed the High Court judges filing out of a church and shaking hands with Cardinal Pell on the way out. That would have been one of the what law masses. was that masses. High Court that found him not guilty? Mm. Different members. And you know what? Legally speaking, probably, you know, a correct decision at the end of the day with that. Like, I can't fault the High Court on that. But it's not a good look, judges, when you kick off the law year with a a mass held by these guys who there's a 1 in 15 chance that you're going to be trying them over some child abuse case because that was the figure from the Royal Commission was Mm -hmm. 1 in 15 Catholic priests was. Yeah, in the St John of God order it was 1 in 2. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I just, mean, just, there's that old saying that, was it, the law must be seen not, not only to be a beyond reproach but must be also be seen to be beyond reproach. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So apparently the guy who lost that, the, that case against Pell mm-hmm. gave a very gracious statement, more or less understanding the High Court decision in the case. So it would have been a very interesting testimony to hear that guy. The parents of the one who ended up committing suicide Mm. apparently are going ahead with the civil case against Um, his estate and the church. um, Right. Okay. There we go. So what other comments have we got here? Yeah. So that was the main thing with Pell. What can you say except, uh, you know, it's the institutions. Pell? The thing about the Catholic Church is that it's got such a grip on our institutions in our society now. Mm-hmm. So many schools, so yep. many hospitals, yep. so many employment agencies, so many nursing homes, retirement villages. Like they've just got a grip of so many institutions that even when they have these appalling characters, they, uh, the grip holds on because just got so much institutional power. What can you do? 
Well, I was saying more so in Ireland. I mean, here is mm. bad, but Ireland was worse, and they're slowly prying the, the claws off the levers yes. of power. Yeah, yep. In the chat room, good on you for joining in there. Don Tuvey's there, Tom the Warehouse Guy, and James has just joined us. Good on you, James. I'm going to be in Sydney next month, James. I'll send you guys some details. Dominic Perrottet, he's been in the news. Mm. I mean, Joe, who hasn't at their 21st birthday party if not a Nazi outfit, maybe a Chairman Mao or a Che Guevara or I don't know, like a, some crazy outfit. We've all done stupid things as young people yes. that we regret. Yeah. So he's, got, he's been hauled over the coals because it hasn't come out yet that he was warned that there was a photo about of him at his 21st in a Nazi uniform and that it was going to be publicised. So he kind of had to come out and beat the publication and say, I believe there is this photograph. Yes, I did do that at my 21st, wear a Nazi outfit and, of course, terribly ashamed, blah, 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 blah. So a bit torn about this one, Joe. I mean, it is odd. Well, you know, people do do stupid things, even at 21. And I don't know, I've... I guess I'm leaning on the side where I'm a bit sympathetic for what people do at 21. You're still really stupid. And let's face it, what was his upbringing at that point? What was his life experience? Fairly cloistered in conservative circles. You know, what's important is... What he's doing what, now and whether he regrets yeah, it. Yes. And is he showing Nazi tendencies now? And, you know... What is the guy must be in his forties, I guess. We're talking twenty years ago. If everybody gets hauled over the coals for something they did twenty years ago, I mean, you know, it wasn't like he raped somebody or sexually assaulted somebody. Put on a stupid outfit, and yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a bit sympathetic to that. So, in terms of some of the things I saw on Twitter, got a lady vaccine said. I thought Perrottet was a normal anti-abortion, anti-voluntary assisted dying, ex-young Liberals president raised in the ultra-conservative, historically fascist, Opus Day faith. And now we find out he was doing weird Nazi shit at uni. Frankly, I'm shooketh to the very cause. This is true. That's the stuff to focus on, that he was anti, well, that he is anti-abortion, anti-voluntary assisted dying, ultra-conservative, Opus Dei faith yep. member. That's and, and something about the Catholic funeral, Catholic burial grounds or something, wasn't there? Yeah, there was all sorts of funny stuff with financing of cemeteries and stuff mm. going on. So that's the stuff to to haul him over the coals for. Some other comments I saw, one was from Black and Black saying, I'm a Jew, I think what Dominic Perrottet did in dressing as a Nazi was poor taste and he showed a serious lack of judgment, but does that in and of itself make him a Nazi sympathiser? That's an awfully long stretch of the bow. Uh, let's not forget, Prince Harry also dressed up as a Nazi. It's true. Yeah, I remember the scandal. Mm. And uh, Ross said, I dislike Dominic Perrottet. I disdain the ideologies he espouses. I detest the way he treats the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society. I also don't think it's right that a stupid mistake as a young man is such a big deal. So, And 
This one other one was Daniel Andrews got more negative media coverage for falling down steps and breaking his back than Perrottet did for wearing a Nazi uniform. I guess that's true because the Nazi, while he did get some negative press, it was all over and done with in sort of 24, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Whereas Daniel Andrews falling down a set of stairs has been going on for years. Although Perrottet has been referred off to the police for some reason. Not to do with that, surely. Yeah. What? Yeah, I saw something about he's been referred off. I have no idea what. I didn't know it was even a criminal offence. Goodness me. Goodness me. Yeah. So there we go. What else have we got? Need to get rid of somebody who had a advertising in the chat room. You've got to yes. handle that person deftly. Well done, Joe. So one of the theories going on, Joe, is that Heritage is actually seemingly quite keen to take on the poker machine industry. And there were sort of whisperings people felt that this was a movement uh, by the poker machine industry releasing this stuff, damaging Perrottet as a warning to back off. Well, I've just seen mm-hmm. it's the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party is arguing that he potentially broke the Oaths Act when he signed the Le- Liberal Party pre-selection document declared that he had nothing to disclose that could, could embarrass the party. That's right. Yes. So it's not over the wearing of the uniform, it's whether he lied on that form. Right, yes, because when you sign up, you have to say, there's nothing in my history that's going to embarrass me or the party that I haven't already told you. Right. And I guess he would say, well, I forgot about yeah. my Nazi outfit. Not something that jumps to mind immediately. Yeah. And I think he'd probably, surely our police, well, surely that won't go. Further. Anyway, you know, don't like Dominic Perrottet, but on this one, Mm -hmm. a bit of sympathy. Anybody in the chat room disagree? Anyone thinks he should be hauled over the coals? Let us know. Tom the Warehouse Guy, what do you think? So, yeah, back to the pokies. New South Wales. What they're looking at there is is looking at bringing in – well, actually, I read this article from Crikey. This is by uh, Stephen Main, who was the founder of Crikey, writes the occasional column – and he's now a shareholder activist. And he's actually got shares in that major poker machine uh, aristocrat. And he's going to try and get on the board and try and ch- turn things around. So he wrote an article in Crikey saying that the New South Wales Labor leader, Chris Minns, has come up with a minimalist package of changes which will do little to reduce the record $7 billion a year lost on the 90000 plus electronic gaming machines in New South Wales. 90,000 machines in New South Wales, $7 billion a year. The opposition leader in his pitch for the upcoming election, his, his policy is that the VIP lounge signs will disappear from outside pubs and that they can no longer donate to the Labor Party and that only $500 in cash can be loaded into a poker machine. And that's it. But, according to this article, New South Wales will retain its high-intensity $10 maximum bet machines. So in Victoria, the maximum is $5. At $10 a bet, Joe, you can crank through a serious amount of money. I think it's $100 an hour. $100 a minute would be quite possible with a $10 bet. Probably. Mm. So it, it's a logical fallacy tax, isn't it? 
If you don't understand the fallacy that the house always wins, then... Yes. Well, it's working on dopamine levels and these people are are subjects in a terrible sort of rat-in-a-laboratory-type experiment where they're getting dopamine hits from a conditioning process that they've undergone. There, There was also the whole prepaid card where you would load it up before you started your session and before the dopamine had kicked in. Mm. And that was all you could gamble for the night. Yes, and that's what Perite is introducing. Right, and okay. Labor has not agreed to that. What is What sort of Labor Party is this in New South Wales? The very no, people... One, one that doesn't care about the working poor. That's right. The very people who are victims of this, of this monstrous industry are Labor Party voters. And so Perite's firm commitment is to eliminate cash from the machines, whereas Labor's proposing a 12-month trial, Joe, involving just 500 machines. And they're promising that they will compensate the pubs for any losses suffered as a result of the trial that's going to be done on 500 machines. Wouldn't want them to lose any money. No, absolutely not. Mm, that's a, a, a trial of of no cash, whereas um, Perite is saying, let's just all of them move to no cash. And there's mm-hmm. plenty of studies around the world showing the effectiveness of that. You don't need another trial. Like, it's been done before. And, uh, you know... Uh, maybe, uh, maybe we should fund the tobacco manufacturers for their losses in people giving up smoking. Yes. Let's put... Let's put packaging which shows ugly lesions and mm. cancerous growths and let's compensate the tobacco companies for this trial that we're running that's quite possibly yes. going to harm their business. What are the, what what does Minns got into Parliament for? What did he struggle all those years for to get leader of the New South Wales Labor Party if that's what you're going to do? Honestly. So in terms of the Labor Party, when they announced the package, and there's a fair chance that Labor will win the next state election, the aristocrat share price finished higher by eight cents. So the stock market looked at the Labor policy and thought, hmm, that's pretty good for aristocrat. Bumped the price up by eight cents. Incidentally, aristocrats' shares were originally floated at $2.90 a share in 1996, valuing the company at $303 million. Today, it is worth $21.8 billion. Yeah, that's that. In, what did we say that was? 1996. Mm-hmm. So 28 20, years. Yeah. From $303 million to $21.8 billion just by making uh, you a fairly it'd be worth simple a couple mach- of billion just on inflation alone. Yeah. Just from making a fairly simple machine. Mm-hmm. Nothing particularly whiz-bang about it. Well, actually, a lot of whizzing and a lot of belling and ringing. But Well, actually, no, no the, the gambling machine industry is... Mm. Uh, the, the electronics is relatively simple. It's all the compliance that you have to because yeah. they have to state that they will pay out a minimum of X every mm. so often. Mm. So there are, there are some fairly strict rules around how the machines work. Yeah. Spend a lot of money on psychologists saying, how do we rope people in more effectively? Mm. 
So, um, oh, no, uh, you just do A-B testing. Yeah, right. Okay. So so you try your new yes. firmware out colors, on, on half the sounds. machines or whatever it is on half the machines. Yes. And the ones that make more money, you keep. And the yes. other ones you convert to whatever you've done. Yes. So Tom the Warehouse guy said, I can't stand Parate, Nazi uniform or not. That said he did know about it and didn't disclose it or make an apology. That's all he can be criticised for. Right. Still on this topic, from Tim Costello writing in The Guardian. I think Tim Costello is the brother of Peter Costello. And different character. So gambling does the most harm to people of New South Wales and Labor is the, the very people that Labor is supposed to represent. So this is about New South Wales. The state has half of the nation's pokies. And incredibly, New South Wales has 35% of the world's poker machines in its clubs and pubs. In New South Wales alone, what an amazing statistic. 35% of the world's pokies are in New South Wales. So Australia has the greatest gambling losses in the world, 40% greater than the nation that comes second. And the turnover in New South Wales each year, $95 billion. Holy smokes, these are big numbers. Hmm. How much of that goes to the state government? Tiny little percentage, but yeah. On the surface, some of Labor's policies seem to have merit, but dig deep and you realise they lack real substance. That's because they don't commit to the reform that matters most and which Dominic Perrottet has already proposed, and that is the introduction of a universal cashless gambling card that requires pre-commitment to a spending limit. Honestly, Labor, how hard can it be? A guy who wore a Nazi outfit on his 21st birthday is showing you what compassion is. I guess he's also showing what leadership is, Joe. I'm guessing that Hitler also banned gambling. I tell you what, he wouldn't have been afraid of the fight. He would have looked at the yeah, looked at the gambling industry. Anyway, a loss limit capped at fifteen hundred dollars a day is hardly an infringement on civil liberties. So why don't Labor support this? And this, Costello says, the answer is politicians remain beholden to the gambling industry. Trials have been held in... I was going to say, with that amount of money floating around, it wouldn't surprise me. Mm. Um, Trials have already been held in New South Wales and there's overwhelming evidence from overseas that mandatory pre-commitment of losses before gambling reduces gambling harm. You know, Joe, it's not just the people, the families of these people... Feel so sorry for them with their partner heads off gambling and then the family's got nothing left for the rest of the week. Who's doing it right? Funnily enough, Norway is the gold standard since it began its reforms in 2007 by banning slot machines. It's possible for a government just to ban a slot machine and introduce machines which could only be played with cashless cards. Oh, here we go. Had a mandatory limit on the amount players could gamble. Mandatory breaks in play? lower bets, lower prizes, and player exclusion options. That's Norway gold standard. There's a link to that in the show notes. Apparently all pokies in Australian casinos will now have a cashless card as a result of the shocking crime and predatory revelations in various royal commissions. That's in casinos. Tasmania is going to have cashless cards, 
on a bipartisan basis. Obviously, Minns in the Labor Party of New South Wales is just kicking the issue into the long grass. The spin rate on machines should also be slowed and losses disguised as wins should be banned. That's when a machine dings as if you have won, but you've actually lost. And it is one of the most addictive design features. I mean, they would have had to give a guy a bonus, an aristocrat, mm-hmm. whoever was the character who said, you know how we make these machines ding when people win and that encourages them? Why don't we just throw in a few dings when people lose? Yeah, it's... Brilliant. Um, what's it called now? Avalob's dog? No, no, no. There's ba- basically if you don't reward somebody every time but only intermittently, yes. they can't predict when they're going to win and that actually makes it even more addictive. Correct, yes. So he concludes the article by saying... It's astonishing that Australia's blind spot is gambling, just as the USA's is guns. The rest of the world is in disbelief at how one industry could pull this off. Good point. Yes, our blind spot, gambling and um, religious schools. Yes, that's our our version of gun control. Right, scroll through there. Stamp duty and land tax, Joe. We have... Mm. Previously talked about this and it last week. Hmm. Did we mentioned this. Did we do this article last week? No, 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 no. So nearly all economists and most politicians agree that stamp duty is a bad tax, but nearly all state and territory governments rely on it to keep the lights on. So it's a bad tax because it taxes homeowners every time they move, merely because they've moved. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense, does it? It's, it's not a it's not a great cost to the government, the fact that somebody's moved. Moved a house. No. Why should they be paying because of that? So at $40,000 per move on a median-priced home in Sydney or Melbourne, that would be the figure, the average stamp duty. It's even a de facto tax on divorce. When a family home is sold to allow assets to be split, each member of a separating couple needs to pay stamp duty to purchase again. So it's unfair. It hits the younger households that move around the most and it leaves alone the old residents who stay put, i.e. boomers. Mm -hmm. So there's new modelling by the Centre for Policy Studies at Victoria University finds abolishing stamp duty and replacing the revenue lost with land tax would put downward pressure on the price paid by buyers of about 4.7%. So Australian Capital Territory is in a program where they're switching over in It's a 20-year program, gradually swapping over. And back to New South Wales, in the lead-up to the March election, where they're coming up with their policies, what the coalition government, Perite, has legislated to offer first-home buyers the option of paying an annual land tax rather than stamp duty. (coughs) If they buy a property worth up to $1.5 That's a good, interesting idea, offering the option. That's not a very expensive property, though, one and a half million. No. It's probably Um, probably the lower 10% of Sydney, isn't it? Yeah, but I think think it's a bit of a scale. You'll still, maybe that is the limit. Not sure on Mm. that. So from this week, first-home buyers in New South Wales can choose between paying stamp duty or an annual land tax on properties up to 1.5 million. Under the initiative, first homeowners will instead pay an annual fee of $400 plus 
0.3% of the property's land value. So it's not the total value, just the mm. land value. So it's what you pay rates on. Yeah, unimproved land value. So, Joe, I did a quick calculation. If we're talking about a property that has to be $1.5 million in total, mm-hmm. maybe the land is worth 800000 mm-hmm. So that annual land tax would be 2900 per annum. So, yeah, I would imagine lots of people would go for paying that annual fee rather than, I mean, if you bought and sold within a few years, you'd be way ahead just by paying that. Absolutely. Yeah. State governments get a lot of money from a proportion of their budget. So stamp duty revenue as a share of the total tax revenue for the states and for the various states. Victoria, it's over 30%. It looks like about 34%. New South Wales, about 28 Queensland, a little bit lower, maybe about 26% of total revenue for the state governments is is in that 20 to 30% range just from stamp duty. So it's a significant amount of the budget. On something you're doing every 10 or 20 years maybe. Yes. So it makes sense to convert everybody over. And okay. And the other thing is that whereas homeowners can avoid paying stamp duty by refusing to move, land can't be moved, meaning land tax can't be avoided. It's the other point as well. So you would have a more reliable, consistent revenue stream where you're imposing this annual fee. Yeah, makes sense. The other thing, territory doesn't have freehold. True. Leasehold in 99-year leases in Mm -hmm. Canberra, yeah. Mm. Right. Okay, that's New South Wales coming up to an election, even though... We're based in Queensland. We've got you across it. At different times, we talk about inequality on this podcast. And here's a conversation. I like these guys. This is a – they're on Twitter or maybe on Facebook. It's called Exploding Heads. So, yeah, on Twitter. Look up Exploding Heads and follow these guys because they're quite good. And here's some thoughts. Sounds like a conversation I've had with maybe right-wing Tony at one point. We'll just see. Hang on. Look, it's really quite simple. If you are posh and middle class and you think society should be more equal, then you're a champagne socialist and that's pathetic. And that discounts my opinion. Of course it discounts your opinion. That, that's a nice view from your ivory tower. Grow up. What if I were poor and working class? Well, that's the politics of envy. You right. don't want to see anyone else achieve just because you can't. Let us live, you, you Grinch. What if I grew up poor but became wealthy? Well, then you've betrayed your working class roots and you simply cannot be trusted. Look, it's simple. If you are any of these three groups, you're automatically discredited. It's a crying shame, but those are the rules. Well, you made up the rules. Those are the... Sums it up. Mm-hmm. In the chat room, Alison has joined us. Good on you, Alison. Right. I actually don't have a follow-up on inequality. I just saw that one and I thought, well said. Now couple of other little things to mention. Joe, we were talking about books last week after the podcast. You came up with mm-hmm. a good idea. Maybe we should do it as like a book club. Yes. So I think that's a good idea. And so as we're going to work through some of these books, we're going to do it as a book club. So dear listener, your book to read and get ready by the end of February is The Carbon Club by Marianne Wilkinson. And uh, the other Paul in Canberra has already started reading it. I've got it to read. And I, you know, details will be provided, but if you want to read the book and want to join us in a sort of a book club 
talk about the Carbon Club, then let me know and we'll get you involved somehow and we'll talk about the book, which will become part of a podcast. But it really is the truth behind Australia's two decades of climate inaction and tells the story of how a loose confederation of influential climate change sceptics, politicians and business leaders sought to control Australia's response to the climate crisis. So if you're wondering why Australia never did anything and why we were so slack compared to the rest of the world in responding to the climate crisis, then the Carbon Club tells you who all the players were and what they did and the ins and outs of that. So John Howard and people like that will get a good look in. So if that interests you, grab the Carbon Club, get ready for Book Club sometime in February towards the end. And the other one is just I've got a second podcast happening called IFVG Evergreen. Uh, which I'm just playing around with. It's on a different system. So look for that. And yeah, so that's a little few items there. Now, back to the UK and Prime Minister Sunak. How do you pronounce his name, Joe? I can't never remember. Sunak. So here is an interview that a journalist had with him and just another example of... This is what journalists need to do. And if you are watching the video, you can see the uncomfortable look on Sunak's face as he's not allowed to get away with stuff. And he realises, oops, here's a journo who's just not letting me do what I really want to normally do in this situation. So here we go. Still Prime Minister after that election. Would you accept the result of that de facto referendum? I tell you what I'm focused on is delivery for the people in Scotland. Today's announcement... Yeah, but that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you about the, the, the possibility of a de facto referendum in the next general election, which is what the First Minister is proposing. You spoke about it last night. Would you accept the outcome yeah, we, of that? We, we didn't talk about the next general election. What we did talk about, though, is the things that we can do to deliver for people here in Scotland by working constructively together. And today's announcement of two new free ports... Yeah, but, but you're completely ignoring my question, which is about the possibility of the next general election a de facto referendum. Would you accept the outcome of that? What I'm focused on... I know, but that's, but that's not what I'm asking you what you're focused on. I'm asking you to focus on this because there's a lot of people in Scotland who are very interested in this. Would you accept the outcome of a de facto referendum? Do you know what? I was, I was out all of yesterday evening. I've been out all of today. And what people are talking to me about is what we can do to actually make their lives better in the so here and now. you're just not going to talk about what they're talking about. You're just going to ignore my well, question. I, I, about, I, you're just going to ignore my question about Scotland's constitutional future. Is that what you're doing? No, I think when it comes to a general election, people will make up their own minds on what they want to vote on, right? So it's not, it's not really for me to talk about that. What I well, can it is, because that's what I'm asking you, but it sounds like, like you're, you're ignoring the mandate of the Scottish Parliament, you're ignoring a mandate potentially a Westminster election. Are you ignoring democracy? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. What we are doing is delivering... It goes on. But I like mm. that. That's such a classic line, is it? What we're focused on here, what people I've been talking to are focusing on is jobs and growth. <laughs> I, I disregard your reality and insert my own. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Well done to that reporter. The reporter was Colin Mackay. Good on you, Colin Mackay. Joe, Prince Harry, put out a book, Spare. Mm, so I hear. Very popular book in terms of sales. Is it? I think it's, yes. I think it's, it was one of the fastest selling okay. books on the, on the book. All those anti-monarchists want to read well, the salacious gossip. Yeah, I think there's been so much by the Murdoch press in particular, dissing the guy, 
that it's just created interest in the book. So apparently one of the things he wrote in there, he, he apparently when referring to Rupert Murdoch in the book, Harry says, quote, Indeed, I couldn't think of a single human being who in the 300,000-year history of the species has done more collective damage to our sense of reality. Well, yeah, fair enough. Makes you want to go out and buy the book. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Mm. So in the book he talks about killing people when he was in Afghanistan and a lot of press about what he had to say in the book about that. So I'm going to read a bit from The Guardian. Now, Joe, you would expect The Guardian on a topic of this to be relatively centrist or anti-monarchist no. or pro-monarchist? A- or a- Anti-royals. Anti-royals. And certainly anti-war. Right. Okay. Good point. This is from The Guardian. Army veterans criticised Prince Harry's claim he killed 25 Taliban in Afghanistan. High-profile British veterans have criticised the Duke of Sussex, Sussex's claim. It's not easy, Joe. Sussex's claim. He had killed 25 Taliban soldiers while serving the British Army in Afghanistan. The retired Army veteran Colonel Tim Collins said the Prince's kill count talk was crass and, quote, we don't do notches on the rifle butt, end quote. Others said Harry had appeared wrongly to dehumanise the insurgents by describing them as chess pieces removed from the board, while the Taliban accused the prince of committing war crimes on his tour a decade ago. Just read the next bit. Later, the prince acknowledged he had dehumanised those who he had shot in battle. When I found myself plunged in the heat and confusion of combat, I didn't think of those 25 as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board. Bad people eliminated before they could kill good people. This guy Collins again says, amongst his assertions is a claim that he killed 25 people in Afghanistan. That's not how you behave in the army. It's not how we think. He has badly let the side down. We don't do notches on the rifle, but we never did. Yeah. I mean, he's he's said this has been taken out of context. He was talking about other members of the armed forces. He's very much involved in veteran affairs and suicidal ideation. Yeah. And he says part of that is the guilt of killing people. And he was trying to normalise the fact that if you're a soldier sent off to war, you do kill people, mm. which is why he says, look, I have killed people. It's it's not something I'm proud of, but it's not something I'm ashamed of either. Mm. And so when you... Trying when... to normalise the fact that this is a, a part of being a soldier. Mm. So the emphasis in the article was quoting extensively this guy saying, we don't do notches on our rifle butts. That's a terrible crass thing to do. He's letting mm-hmm. the side down, blah, blah, blah. When you actually read the passage in the book, then you get a quite a different impression of Harry. And so this is from a guy called James O'Brien who is on LBC in the UK and He's going to read a bit of this passage. It's actually a long section. It goes for three minutes and 45 seconds. Joe, if you need a toilet break, here's the opportunity. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So I'm going to play this one and have a listen, dear listener, as to, you know, you've just heard from The Guardian and now have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. The thought experiment is this. Try, if you can, to come to this cold. Imagine if you heard this coming out of your radio or you read this in a book and you didn't know the author. The author wasn't famous. It was just a military memoir. 
rather than, well. So it's quite long, but I'm going to read all of it. Afghanistan was a war of mistakes, a war of enormous collateral damage. Thousands of innocents killed and maimed, and that always haunted us. So my goal from the day I arrived was never to go to bed doubting that I'd done the right thing, that my targets had been correct, that I was firing on Taliban and only Taliban, no civilians nearby. I wanted to return to Britain with all my limbs, but more, I wanted to go home with my conscience intact, which meant being aware of what I was doing and why I was doing it at all times. Most soldiers can't tell you precisely how much death is on their ledger. In battle conditions, there's often a great deal of indiscriminate firing, but in the age of Apaches and laptops, everything I did in the course of two combat tours was recorded, time-stamped. I could always say precisely how many enemy combatants I'd killed, and I felt it vital never to shy away from that number. Among the many things I learned in the army, accountability was near the top of the list. So, my number, 25. It wasn't a number that gave me any satisfaction, but neither was it a number that made me feel ashamed. Naturally, I'd have preferred not to have that number on my military CV, on my mind, but by the same token, I'd have preferred to live in a world in which there was no Taliban, a world without war. Even for an occasional practitioner of magical thinking like me, however, some realities just can't be changed. While in the heat and fog of combat, I didn't think of those 25 as people. You can't kill people if you think of them as people. You can't really harm people if you think of them as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board. Bads taken away before they could kill goods. I'd been trained to other eyes them, trained well. On some level, I recognised this learned detachment as problematic, but I also saw it as an unavoidable part of soldiering, another reality that couldn't be changed. Now, why bother sharing that with your readers when you can just tell them that he's painted targets on, on, on the back of his own children and then ring up the woman upon whom Edina in Absolutely Fabulous was based in order to get her to talk about the terrible PR damage that he's done? I'm not exaggerating the second bit. The Daily Mail's actually done that today. Why bother actually sharing the actual words that he actually wrote when you could instead turn it into yet another firework display or opportunity to attack him without having all the facts you need to have a fully formed opinion? It's almost like every single thing he said about British newspapers was true, and they're proving it today. I just thought that was a, a, a remarkable. Mm. Very different picture. And mm -hmm. look, I don't know what ghost writer he had. Probably a couple of them, I don't know. But anyway, probably. You know, a little bit endearing of the guy. Like, clearly, you know, that, that wall was, I don't know, sounded like a sensible guy trying to make sense of an experience that he had and tell it honestly. And you just get bagged mercilessly in the mm -hmm. media and a different. And, you know, the same press that. Had that been a member of the SAS, would have yes. been lauding him for his revelations. Indeed, indeed. Just a double standard there. So it's just an example of propaganda, a classic example of propaganda because the powers that be have decided that the royal family at this point in time must be maintained in their current position and Harry is a threat to that, so he's got to be dealt with and... I did see somebody earlier today in one of the chat forums I'm a member of saying, oh, if this person got in trouble for what they said about Meghan, 
that makes him a racist, doesn't it? Right. Because you can't have a valid criticism of Meghan Markle without mm. it being anything to do with her race. Yes, race will get tossed into things all the time. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, you know, she's an American and she's a divorcee. Mm. Uh, that was enough for old Eddie to step down, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, and it's such a blatant propaganda against the guy. Like, okay, not saying he's a saint or whatever, but people with a visceral hate of of him and his wife. Yeah, I mean, he's... Swallowing the propaganda. He's bagged the firm, hasn't he? Hmm, indeed. Traitor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not as bad as his mother. Yeah. Maybe he's going to take the heir off to America to raise him. Was that what she was going to do? She was going to take... She was shacked up with Dodie. Right. She was going to take them both off to America and live with Dodie. That was never going to happen, was it? That was was the allegations as to why she was knocked off. Oh, was it? Yeah. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Didn't know that. But, well, and and the allegation is she was intentionally killed. Hmm. So, yeah. Look, when I remember when I first heard about the sort of conspiracy over who shot JFK in the grassy knoll and I was like, oh, what a complete load of conspiracy nonsense or whatever. The more you think about it, the more you go, well, maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Speaking of racism, Joe, Oyster Parliament's going to be coming up. There was an article Yeah, and you're racist if you're against it. Yes, indeed. There's no doubt... No doubt I will be You're not allowed to have valid questions. That makes you a racist as soon as you say anything at all. Yes. Meanwhile, I'm defending China at every opportunity against what is really often a racist attack. Like the the whole forcing people coming from China to undergo special testing for COVID a couple of weeks ago while COVID is running rampant around the world. In case they have Kung flu. Yeah. That was just... That was just a racist policy, and I expect better from the Labor Party. Well, do I expect better? Maybe I'm not surprised, but disappointed yet again. <clears throat> anyway, an article by a guy, Anthony Dillon. Oh, who's Anthony Dillon? Well, he's writing in news.com. He yep. works for ACU. Yes. So he identifies as part Aboriginal Australian is an academic with the Australian Catholic University and is a commentator on Aboriginal affairs. So... He certainly looks as if he's of Aboriginal heritage. Can you even say that, Joe? Are you allowed to say that? I don't know if you're allowed to say it. (laughs) (laughs) On this podcast, you are. Anyway. He's certainly not white with blonde hair looking very Nordic. Yeah. I guess it doesn't surprise that a clearly dear listener, he's going to have a slightly contrarian view, slightly contrarian, and it doesn't surprise that this comes out of somebody at the Australian Catholic University. So anyway, just a few extracts from his article where he says, First, if the voice does get up, its highest priority should be to abandon the prevailing ideology that Indigenous Australians are fundamentally different from non-Indigenous Australians. 
I believe the number one reason why we are not seeing the gap close, despite considerable investment in programs that aim to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians, is because they have been cast as having vastly different needs from other Australians, but they essentially have the same fundamental needs as other Australians. My default position when I took an interest in Indigenous affairs was that the commonalities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians far outweigh any differences. Nearly three decades, decades later, and I have not seen any evidence to the contrary. And he goes on a bit further. Finally, once recognising that Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians are far more alike than they are different, the voice should abandon the preferred view that only Indigenous Australians are considered capable of understanding and helping Indigenous Australians. I'm not saying Indigenous business and service providers should not exist. I'm all for them, as many do a great job. But what I am saying is that caring and competent non-Indigenous service providers are just as capable as helping Indigenous people as Indigenous service providers are. To question this is to question if Indigenous service providers are capable of helping non-Indigenous people. Of course they are. And to suggest otherwise is racist. So, Joe, on you know, I don't think I mentioned New Year's Eve, I was on a boat on the river mm-hmm. and one of a friend of a friend I met on the boat had worked as a nurse in... Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Stories. She was there for three weeks. She lasted. <laughs> Police and teachers were in a secure compound. But Queensland Health didn't have nurses in a secure compound. I've heard uh, Thursday Island is not a good place to go as a nurse either. Mm. Really dangerous yeah. in terms of, of just getting from their accommodation to the hospital. And just some of the stories, oh, my goodness me. Just, you know, of course, dear listener, the problem with that community is that you've got five or six tribes who were all hustled into this one town, ex sort of missionary type town, and there's just all this tribal conflict that's just still ongoing. And any amount of money or resources thrown at that, I cannot see a solution other than closing the entire town down and moving people separate ways. But that's never going to happen. There, there is no solution to that one. Good luck to people in The Voice making representations to Parliament about what should happen in communities like that that are actually going to fix the problem. Yeah, she'd been in some other remote towns as well in central Australia. It's another world out there, Joe. Not like the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane. <laughs> Ah, right. Nobody in the chat room commented on that one. We've got through that unscathed. Joe, you saw this one. Mm. It was about Supreme Court in the USA hearing a labour dispute, essentially where there were cement truck drivers who went on strike while they still had wet cement in their trucks and they basically returned the trucks to sort of depot and kept the the machines turning 
but then walked away and it would have been a mad scramble for supervisors and management staff to... Empty the trucks out before it's out. Yes, indeed. So there's a case going before the Supreme Court about the right of strike of, of labour to strike in circumstances where there might be some sort of, well, some obvious ancillary or consequential damage might flow. So see what happens. Do you have any strong thoughts about that one? Or you just It's a concern that a very make-it-up-as-you-go-along Supreme Court mm. is likely to say, oh, well, you know, the unions are liable for any costs that an employer might face whilst they're on strike. Mm. which is, yeah, deliberately trying to push the costs of a strike. Yeah, any loss of profit, any loss of ongoing revenue, mm. basically making it impossible to strike without getting sued. Mm. So in this case, you know, none of the trucks were damaged by concrete setting in them, so but the employer decided to take on the union with a friendly court in session and see how they go. So there's been previous cases, milk truck drivers who went on strike even though the strike risked spoiling some milk and a similar thing with striking cheese workers. So see how that one goes. Might be more difficult for people to strike. Yeah, well, even this Biden government did that thing with the railway workers, mm -hmm. forcing them back to work even though the majority wanted to keep going with a strike. So yeah, not very labour-friendly. I did hear about that. It's probably on opening arguments, isn't it? No, I think I've read about it. I haven't heard the story on opening arguments. Yeah. Mm. No, no, I read about it somewhere, but I would have thought it was something that Andrew Torres would cover. Mm. Right. And just going to finish off with a bit of reading of Caitlin Johnston. So she's a blogger and she's got some good thoughts, I think, because what have we been looking at here it's, you know, Cardinal Pell, child abuse enabler, getting positive coverage in the national newspaper. We've got poker machine industry crippling so many families, yet still charging on, and the Labor Party not doing anything about it, really. Mining industry, coal mining in particular. Indeed. And we've got... The mining you know, industry overthrowing an, an elected government. Yes. Kevin Rudd. Yes, indeed. Yep. So, anyway, I'll read some of uh, Caitlin Johnson here. If you live in one of the so-called free democracies of the Western world, the worst mistake you can make is to buy into the hype, to believe you are a free individual in a nation that respects and protects your freedom and individuality. Whenever I broach this subject, I always get a deluge of objections along the line of, well, I'd much rather live where I live than under an authoritarian regime like in Iran or China. You would never be allowed to criticise your rulers the way you do if you lived in one of those places. Actually, Joe, I get this all the time in the podcasting community because people who are working on new podcasting protocols and other stuff in the tech side of podcasting, it's all out of America. They're really pro-libertarian, pro-crypto anti-government mm -hmm. and they often and like some good guys in there like they're doing voluntary work they're really doing a lot of hard work voluntarily just for the industry not making money themselves 
I keep throwing in these anti-China comments and stuff like that along the way, justifying why they're why they're keeping it open source because you know of the government, and then and then they'll throw in, and of course, you know, authoritarian regimes like China. It just shits me off that they do it. Anyway, I'll, I dig- I've digressed. Back to Caitlin Johnson. And I always want to ask them, what do you think drove you to make that objection? Why are you falling over yourself to defend your country and the people who rule over you while condemning foreign countries that your own government happens to dislike? Could it be because that's how you've been trained to behave from a young and impressionable age and that your objection is arising from the same place as a cult member's objections to criticisms of their cult? That's what I'm thinking about a lot of things, Joe, is in looking at economics and a lot of sort of standard economic theory is being blown out of the water by MMT mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, the more history you read about the stuff that America's been up to in terms of foreign intervention in other countries. Never happened. Yeah. It's, it's like it's like... Religion, when you went, you're a kid and you were told these fairy tales and eventually you pick up a Christopher Hitchens book or something and you go, oh, shit, I've been lied to thoroughly, haven't I? Like, of course, this was complete nonsense. I really hate having the wool pulled over my eyes by people deceiving me, Joe. I hate it and I hate swallowing bullshit if I find myself doing it. It's terrible. So Mm -hmm. I'm finding my response to challenging standard sort of economic theories like I have been recently and, of course, the US hegemony in that as a a reaction to having, you know, swallowed that whole neoliberal pro-Western line as a stupid 21-year-old. Like, you know, at my 21st birthday party, I wouldn't have been wearing a Nazi outfit. <laughs> I would have had some pretty stupid ideas in my head that would should make me, you know, unelectable. But, hey, I think I've changed since then. So, anyway, subject to propaganda, that's the way that I thought. It's only that I'm reading more widely now. And if you are, dear listener, you know, you joined this podcast initially because of our anti-religious stance, pro-secular stance, then there's a bunch of other topics where maybe the wool has been pulled over our eyes and we need to look at them just as hard. So she goes on. But that's ultimately what holds power structures together in the US-aligned nations of the global north. Indoctrination, the same thing used to program religious extremists and cult members. The only difference is that rather than scripture and religious leaders, the means of indoctrination is school, mainstream media, and Silicon Valley algorithm manipulation. In reality, we are not truly freer under our rulers than people are under the governments that our rulers hate. Sure, people can post criticisms of their elected officials online, but those criticisms will be dismissed and ignored by everyone who matters. They are being directed at political figureheads with no real power, and they are coming from minds that have been deeply indoctrinated into power-serving worldviews. Your rulers do not care if you're a Democrat who hates Republicans or a Republican who hates Democrats, as long as you're plugged in to one of the authorised reality tunnels. As Noam Chomsky put it, 
Actually, Noam Chomsky is amazing, Joe, in the guy's output. Like he's he's still on, still doing podcast interviews everywhere. He's in his nineties, mm. still sharp as a tank. As Noam Chomsky put it, propaganda is to democracy what the bludgeon is to a totalitarian state. In a totalitarian state, people are physically abused into conformity and obedience. In a democracy, people are psychologically abused into conformity and obedience. In a sense, someone who lives under overt totalitarianism, e.g. China, Russia, is freer than a Westerner who's been indoctrinated by the most powerful propaganda machine ever devised because at least they've got their minds. At least they know who their persecutors are. I love telling that joke. I use it at dinner parties a lot, Joe. Even though I haven't been to a dinner party for a while, but about the Russian guy meeting an American guy on an aeroplane as he's heading to America and the American says, what are you, what are you coming over for? And he said, oh, I've, I've come over to, to learn about American propaganda. And the American says, what propaganda? And the Russian says, exactly. Mm-hmm. Didn't tell it as well as I normally do. I've got the word exactly. Yeah. Like, it's hard to even imagine how much freer our mental lives would be if we weren't being continually herded into artificial confines for thinking about the world. It's actually pathetic how constricted and confined minds are inside the indoctrinated mainstream worldview. Have you ever marvelled how some of the most intelligent people you know can buy into the most obvious articles of propaganda? Some people, though, Joe, take this line of thinking too far when we're thinking of anti-vaxxers and do your own research and... Yeah, I mean, the smarter you are, the easier it is to rationalise your your reasons. So you come to your conclusion and then you make up your reasons afterwards. Yes. And the more intelligent you are, the easier it is to rationalise and make up your reasons. Yes. So when I rail against some of the economic thinking or others, am I just another anti-vaxxer who thinks I've done my own research by watching a few YouTube videos? Possibly. Quite possibly. Hang hang on. The difference is they never question. That's true, yes. But maybe by questioning and then discarding, I'm just rationalising. Possibly. (laughs) At least you're Uh, one step further along. mm, We who live in so-called free liberal democracies like to tell ourselves a fairy tale that we live in a society that respects and prioritises individuality. But the truth is the exact opposite. Our society does everything it can to stomp true individuality out of existence and herd us through conformity manufacturing processing systems. What's presented as individualism increasingly means having the freedom to express express your uniqueness by having endless brands and varieties of products to choose from while thinking the same thoughts as everyone else about your government, your economic systems, your nation and your world. Real individualism would encourage radical individuality and divergence from orthodoxies. Our project then, as prisoners in a profoundly unfree society, is to help awaken as many people as we can to the reality of how unfree we really are, to be voices whispering in the matrix, beckoning the dreamers towards the real world in whatever ways we can, engaging our creativity and finding more and more ways to get people to question if everything they've been told about their world is really true. 
There we go. There was a second one there. I'll read it for next week. Joe, we're done. We're not going to get the hour and a half for the next few weeks, I reckon. Shark Tank. Landon, Landon doesn't leave me any messages anymore. No. Hmm. We, we're going to have to invite Che back on just to yeah. Actually, the probably, tank. You probably can't even find the SpeakPipe link because the website's not really oh, yeah. all mucked around, so you mm. have to fix all that up. Sorry, Landon, you, you can't even do it if you wanted to. All right, dear listener, well, thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends about the podcast. Tell them about the chapters if they want to skip through bits and have a look at the IFVG Evergreen podcast because more and more bits and pieces are being thrown up there and I think it's a good one for people. If you want to introduce your friends to the podcast, then maybe they don't want to go through an hour and a half of some old stories of politics, but there's some good stuff in that Evergreen one. So have a look there and talk to you next week. Bye for now. Well, that's a good note from him. <laughs>